Hey, Matt Techman here from Elucidations. Before we get going, I just thought I'd put in a quick plug for Pippa. We've been doing our hosting with them since 2016, and it's been a fantastic experience. So if you have a podcast, you might check them out. They have great analytics, the service is free, and they make it easy to migrate. So if you're curious, visit their website at pippa.io. All right, thanks. Welcome to Elucidations, a philosophy podcast recorded at the University of Chicago. With me today is Chike Jeffers, Associate Professor of Philosophy at Dalhousie University, and he is here to discuss the social and political philosophy of W.E.B. Du Bois. Chike Jeffers, welcome. Thank you. So, W.E.B. Du Bois is a major intellectual who wrote a whole bunch of books over a whole lifetime. Mm-hmm. Maybe as a, just a sort of a way into some of his thinking. Mm-hmm. We could talk about how he viewed stuff like culture and politics. So, what did he think like politics was about? Yes, well, that's a good question. I think that if one looks at his most famous book, which is his 1903 book, The Souls of Black Folk, the second chapter of that book is kind of a historical account of what was called the Freedmen's Bureau. It was a bureau of the government established after the Civil War to handle many different aspects of, you know, the newly freed people's lives, you know, including land distribution and various other things. So Du Bois was a historian, right? And in that regard, it's unsurprising that a chapter of the book is a historical account. And yet, at the same time, I think that we can read that chapter as also a political analysis, that is, an analysis of power, particularly governmental power in this case. And I think that read as a political analysis, as an analysis of a form of government, of its successes and its failures and its problems, in that sense, he stands in a tradition with, uh, you know, Aristotle considering various regimes and, and other political thinkers through the ages. But what I would also say is perhaps more important when thinking about Du Bois as a thinker of politics is what he had to say about non-governmental forms of political power. And here I'm thinking of leadership, group leadership. I mean, arguably, governments are for, uh, is just one form of group leadership. But if we can say that, you know, within a society we can contrast non-governmental forms of leadership, right, then that was among his most prominent concerns, right? So the third chapter of The Souls of Black Folk is a critique of Booker T. Washington. And Booker T. Washington was, at the time that the book came out, the most prominent black leader, so to speak, in the United States. He was the head of a school called the Tuskegee Institute, today I believe Tuskegee University, and he was very influential in terms of the approach that was being taken to higher education for black people and also questions around how they should 
deal with disenfranchisement and segregation. So Du Bois criticizes Booker T. Washington's so-called accommodationism, right? the fact that Washington uh, advised that black Americans should concentrate on building up their economic power and allow political power to you know, come eventually, so to speak. And uh, so Du Bois was an advocate of you know, immediate civil rights. So that's a good example of, of how leadership was of great concern to him. And one of his more controversial ideas is the idea of the talented tenth. So Du Bois had the view that, that we can generally expect that around a tenth of people are going to have kind of the, uh, the abilities and potential interest to lead and that we should educate and empower them so that they can kind of pull along the rest of us. It's you know, a form of elitism, one might say, if one defines elitism as believing that there ought to be elites, right? This is certainly an argument for an elite, but nevertheless, notably, an elite whose goal is not to distance themselves right, from the masses, but rather to serve the masses through leading them into modern knowledge and habits. Okay, yeah. So we're in America at the end of the 19th century. The slaves have been freed. And there's this question, what do we do now? So Booker T. Washington's answer to that question was uh, the thing for slaves who are recently freed to do is build up economic power, economic infrastructure, and wealth. Start businesses, develop useful skills, begin making things. And then once you've accumulated a certain amount of cultural influence through economic power, then maybe being able to enter into positions of political leadership will just sort of come naturally. Whereas Du Bois was skeptical of that and thought, no, no, the, the first thing we need to do is get into positions of political leadership Something like that. So that's an interesting characterization. And so, you know, um, here are some of the things that I'd say to perhaps correct it. First, a useful point about the historical context. Right? So Du Bois says that at the beginning of the chapter on Booker T. Washington, that Washington's rise is the most striking thing in the history of black America since 1876. Right? And it's important that he says 1876, and he's not saying, for example, 1865, right? 1865, as many people would know, is the end of the Civil War, right? And by 1865, you have the abolition of slavery, and thus people are, by that point, emancipated. 1876 is the end of the period known as Reconstruction. And so during the period known as Reconstruction the federal government militarily occupied the South, the breakaway Confederate states, and there was restrictions on the ability of those who had, you know, seceded, uh, who had led secession, you know, to politically participate, and there were not restrictions on the participation, or there was the removal, you, you might say, of the restrictions of, on participation of African Americans. Right? And so during the period of Reconstruction, you have black people in office in state governments and even sending 
uh, representatives to Congress. I think there was even a black governor at one point. Anyway, black people hold elected office somewhat regularly during this very unique period of American history known as Reconstruction, uh, which comes to an end by 1876. There is a closely contested election, and the presidency goes to the Republican candidate, as I recall, and the deal that they make with the Democrats, as I understand it, is that they get the presidency, but they'll pull the troops out of the South. And there's already been leading up to that, you know, uh, ways in which there's an attempt to kind of retake power by the... uh, the white leadership of the South and that, you know, continues after that. And we see in the decades after Reconstruction, the rise of segregation and Jim Crow law, as it's generally known, right? And so that's where you have not only the fact that black people are no longer in office, but the hollowing out of the right to vote, right? So there had been the 15th Amendment that had granted black men the right to vote, but states enact you know, series of laws to bring it about so that few to no black people are in a position to be able to vote. So coming back now to Du Bois in Washington, right? I think that that's important historical context because uh, the idea is Du Bois wants to say, you know, that we shouldn't accept this backslide, so to speak, in terms of political freedom and participation, that the right to vote is an essential part of citizenship and that also, the black people shouldn't simply accept the kinds of public proscription, you know, the kinds of uh, the kind of public insult, really, also that was enacted through the various forms of segregating public spaces and accommodations and, and transport and so on. And yes, he's critical of the ways in which Washington, with that focus that Washington has on pulling oneself up by one's bootstraps, as they say, through getting wealth. Um, yes, Du Bois is critical of the ways in which that's an accepting of the kind of fall. You know, if, if you leave out Reconstruction, then it kind of seems like as bad as segregation is, it's this, you know, step up from what came right before, right? It's important to recognize that it's this fall, actually, from what has come. And Du Bois is criticizing the ways that Washington is accepting the fall, so to speak. And did he think it wasn't important to build up economic power? Or is this really more of a kind of point where it's like, well, don't just focus on building up economic power? Yes, the idea wouldn't be that you gain political power first for Du Bois. The idea would be that um, is definitely, those are two simultaneous needs. And one thing that's interesting, just to kind of go into Du Bois' arguments, right? I mean, that chapter is, I'd say, one of the most interesting works in the history of African-American political philosophy because he really tries to pull off a, you know, kind of tightly argued internal criticism of Booker T. Washington. And what we philosophers mean by internal criticism is the uh, kind of critique in which uh, one shows that accepting premises held by the person being critiqued, you can then get to the conclusion, the opposite conclusion, and show what's wrong with the conclusion that the person being criticized holds. Right? So Du Bois says that uh, one of the major problems with Washington's view is that he believes you know, that black people need to build up their wealth right, and participate in the economy and 
Du Bois argues that, in a way, Washington is not understanding the kinds of preconditions for successful participation in a free market economy because, according to Du Bois, to lack the right to vote is to lack the ability to protect one's wealth in a free market economy. And we can easily explain that, right? You know, if you... You know, if there is a decision, for example, to lay heavy taxes, you know, on some particular activity or lay taxes heavily if you live in certain areas versus other areas, right, you can imagine that kind of being a cover for disempowering economically, you know, the, uh, the targeted class of people, right? What do you do if you have no political voice? How do you fight that? And so precisely in order to participate in and benefit from a free market economy, according to Du Bois, Washington's goal requires uh, political rights. And just to say another interesting argument that he makes of this sort, he argues that, you know, Washington's view is very much based on a kind of, uh, you know, virtuous self-control. That's why, you know, he emphasizes things like thrift, you know, the ability to save. and So he has these virtues of thrift and hard work that he's encouraging in order for black people to build up wealth. And what Du Bois argues is that accepting the loss of civil rights in the form of segregation is to undermine the character traits that Washington is seeking. There's a lack of self-respect that is inculcated by uh, the idea that, you know, you have to use this bathroom, you know, and, and the fact that you are directed to these lesser facilities and it is thought that you are somehow, that it is in some way tainting, right, for you to use the same facilities and things of that nature, right, you know, that that's the kind of thing that takes a toll on one's self-concept and that the kinds of virtues that Washington is advocating are thereby, you know, ill-served by accepting the loss of civil rights. That's really interesting. So it's not just this sort of practical point that in order to accumulate wealth, you need to be able to vote and you need to be able to run for office, et cetera, et cetera. It's also that in order to exhibit the virtues involved, you know, thriftiness, resourcefulness, et cetera, et cetera, in order to exhibit those virtues, you also have to exhibit the virtues that go along with being accorded political power, i.e. self-respect, et cetera. yes. So it's like there's like a virtue side to the same point. Yes, I mean, and, and it's a response to the way in which, um, you know, Washington had emphasis on these kinds of virtues, right? In fact, I do think that it might be interesting at some point, I don't know whether I will do it, but I think it'd be interesting for someone to write on Washington as a theorist of virtues. Um, yeah. Yeah, but uh, Du Bois' response to that in order to criticize his accommodationism, which is the term that gets used for his acceptance of the loss of political access and civil rights in order to focus on practical education for wealth building. And was Washington's idea, like, let's temporarily not focus on being politically enfranchised because first we need to do this and then later we'll get politically enfranchised? Or is it just, let's just give up on the entire project of being politically enfranchised because this other thing is better? <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I, the idea of Washington, as I understand it, is that um, that will come, right? You can 
I think, you know, sometimes maybe take him as saying that the power of the almighty dollar will bring it about that eventually we won't be able to be ignored as a political force. You know, Washington was a master of kind of trying to appeal also to a certain kind of white conservative perspective. So it could also be read as, yes, eventually we'll gain political power when we've kind of built up our abilities to exercise that wisely. Mm. Right. <laughs> There's two ways, I think, of you know articulating his view there. And I think he maybe even believed both to some degree, but you can see that you know one of the ways is more insulting to black people than the other. <laughs> yeah. And, um, right, one's more insulting and one also is politically very useful for the people in power. Right. right. It's an acceptance of the fact that the people in power have kind of brought that situation into reality. So we mentioned segregation a couple times. Mm-hmm. What were... Du Bois's views on segregation. I kind of assume he was anti, mm-hmm. but probably there's more to it than just that. Mm-hmm. Yes, well, he was, and so I've mentioned a particular argument that he had about the effect of segregation on the virtues, right? And then, in the first decade of the 20th century, he started first an organization called the Niagara Movement, which was pressing for political and civil rights. And that organization was short-lived, but in a way fed into the founding of the NAACP, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. So Du Bois was a founding member of the NAACP, which many will know uh, the name of that organization because it was a very prominent civil rights organization in the 20th century and continues to exist today. Du Bois helped to found that organization. He edited the journal of that organization called The Crisis, and as kind of a spokesperson in that regard for the organization, you know, he was in that way, you know, an important fighter against segregation. But in terms of complicating things, there is a turn he makes in the 1930s. One might provocatively call it a Washingtonian turn, because his view on segregation changes somewhat and it leads to a kind of falling out. He eventually steps down from his position as editor of the crisis because of that and from the, uh, the executive board of the NAACP. So the, the position that he comes to in the 1930s is not that segregation is okay. Indeed, he, I think, always believes that the end of segregation is necessary for justice, but it does become his view uh, that the focus on fighting it may be, in a way, working to the detriment of forms of self-organization that can meet the needs of African Americans and strengthen them economically. Right. So you can see the ways in which it almost seems as if he's going to the position that he previously opposed in the case of Washington. I mean, there's a number of differences between what he's holding in the 1930s and what he opposed in Washington. He's making a more socialist turn at this time, right? And so, you know, he's thinking about what it means to pursue, you know, an economy that is based on cooperation and meeting needs rather than competition and profit maximizing, right? So this is, these are among the important things that he's thinking about, and he's 
Well, he's thinking about what we can call black self-segregation. Well, but that's not the uh, the best way to put it because you know the, the idea again is that we're not trying to accept that segregation is going to last indefinitely, right? But while it is a problem, right? What are we going to do to meet our needs and advance our interests? That's why at that point uh, he's saying, "Hey, look." I don't see the end of segregation being around the corner. You know, are we doing enough to build ourselves up? You know, he's having this more cooperative model, right, of of economics at this time. It's also important, I think, and this gets to the matter of culture, right? So I think we've already said that he has interesting things to say about both politics and culture, even if we kind of started by talking about politics. In any case... One thing that he expresses in some of these writings of the 1930s is the worry that many, particularly among the black elite and middle class, are happy with focusing on fighting segregation because of certain character flaws and bad motivations, namely the motivation of kind of not being stuck with (laughs) the rest of black people, that is, a, a kind of desire to be away from the black masses and to be able to uh, assimilate, so to speak, and a disdain for the black community, perhaps. He's worried that self-hatred is a possible feature here of the idea that we've got to fight to be allowed to be among white people, right? Uh, As freely as possible, right? And again, it's not that he thinks that that's all that fighting segregation means, and he thinks that, you know, segregation ultimately should end. You know, he is a cosmopolitan in the sense that he does believe that things go best when there is a sense of, across all kinds of lines of difference, communication and interaction and so on. That being said, it is also important to him that black people value themselves, that they overcome the kind of self-hatred that a racist society inculcates and that they understand the ways in which their community, you know, is good enough. I mean, or, you know, so understand the ways in which black community is a kind of realm of possibility, right, to be valued rather than something that one would want to run away from. And thus he is, I think, both trying to encourage black people to meet their material needs and also start to maybe deviate from a kind of very capitalist-minded mentality, and he is also trying to fight what he sees as black self-hatred, especially among black elites, and thus encourage the you know, uh, black people to value their communities and the distinctive cultural worlds that black communities are. And you hear this a lot, I think, in the media today. There are people sort of pushing back against, I don't know, some version of an anti-segregationist policy, where the view seems to be, well, sure, it's not like we want power to be unevenly distributed or whatever, and we want people to be able to have the same opportunities. But at the same time, like, you know, I grew up in a black neighborhood, and it was great because everybody was sort of on the same page, and we could, you know, enjoy a pride in our shared cultural experiences together. And is the solution really to just break that up and diffuse everybody randomly into the population so that we don't have neighborhoods of people who take pride in their shared experiences, et cetera, et cetera. It's a very tricky, though, right? Because you don't want to fall back on unevenly distributing power and opportunity either. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so you have this as a kind of a, 
an ongoing debate right now in political philosophy. So Elizabeth Anderson made a big splash with her book, The Imperative of Integration, and took a very strong stance that integration, including of the kind that socially integrates people, is necessary to ending racial inequality in the United States, partly because of the ways in which um, there is access to social capital through integration that she sees as kind of uh, important and necessary to ending black inequality, ending inequality as it affects African Americans especially. There's been responses to that book, some of which, including a chapter in Tommy Shelby's recent book, Dark Ghettos, arguing that we should not accept that the breakup of black communities, that the dissolution, we might say, you know, of majority black communities and neighborhoods, we should not take that as the necessary means to reducing black inequality. And so he has arguments for that. Um, I myself participated in a symposium on the book, and uh, one of the points that I made is that even if we were to accept that, in fact, just as a practical matter, that she was right, that it was exceedingly hard to see how, without more integration, that black equality could be achieved, right? If she were right about that, it's important to recognize kind of just what a tragic conclusion that is, right? And that's what Du Bois uh, would have us say, I think, right? That if we come to the conclusion that black people being amongst themselves cannot, you know, advance, but they need to be around white people more in order to advance, uh, then, yeah, that is a, uh, you know, a blow to black self-esteem, you know, that is worth mourning. <laughs> um, and so I think that the, when I write my chapter where I'm speaking about his views on politics in the 1930s, this will be one of the topics that I will be dealing with and the way in which he very much is relevant to the contemporary debate about de facto segregation, not de jure, not, you know, as enforced by law, but de facto, you know, as remaining in light of previous legal and social structures. You know, there's an ongoing debate in political philosophy about how we deal with that. And Du Bois, therefore, is this very interesting and relevant figure. So did he have any proposed way of, like, squaring this circle of, uh, you know, let's say I'm on the city council and I'm really concerned that people in this neighborhood don't have access to good schools and people in that neighborhood do have, have access to all the best schools. So, and my power is limited, but I do have the power to maybe fund a school bus program that gets people around to more different schools. Ah, wait, but now that I've done that, now maybe I'm worried that I'm breaking up communities. Mm. So it seems like Du Bois was also uh, vexed by this dilemma. Uh, and I, I wonder whether he had any thoughts about how to deal with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting question. Uh, he, you know, he dies before busing programs are, right. are a thing. So it's anachronistic and, a little bit. <laughs> right, yeah. And, and so, you know, that would be you know, an important reason he didn't weigh in on this topic. <laughs> but, you know, I, I think one thing that kind of will help to think through kind of how he thought about the matter. So I said that when he's writing in the 1930s, part of what is going on there is a kind of pessimism about reaching the end of segregation anytime soon, right? And so there is, you know, an argument for being more self-reliant, which, as I have mentioned a couple times, is partly him 
also wanting to increasingly extricate African-Americans from a certain capitalist mindset. But his view in the 1930s is that, you know, are we just going to continue to wait, you know, indefinitely to begin kind of giving at least equal attention to the ways in which we can build up our communities economically and, and meet people's needs? By the early 1960s, and he dies in 1963, he dies not in the United States, but in Ghana, where he moves, I believe, in 1961. In any case, there is a work of his, an essay called Whither Now and Why, that was initially presented to social science teachers, a conference of social science teachers, I believe, uh, uh, the conference was at a historically black university, so I'm guessing it was an organization of black social science teachers. So I've I've written about this essay. You know, it's from 1960, so he's around like 92. You know, uh, so it's again just a an indicator of what a long and productive life he lived. But there's a, a very interesting uh, volume edited by Eric Schließer called Ten Neglected Classics of the History of Philosophy." In any case, I am fortunate to be in the volume, and my essay is on whither now and why. The reason I bring it up is that in that essay, he is looking around at the political scene and no longer seeing reason to be pessimistic about the end of segregation as a, as a legal matter, right? So, you know, he's writing at this point after you've already had Brown versus Board of Education, you know, in 1954, I want to say. He's now thinking about this after you've got the Montgomery bus boycott and that early success, which, of course, is now propelling Martin Luther King Jr. into a position of leadership. So, you know, he's, he's now thinking at a time where there's, you know, a lot of activity and apparently some gains, yeah, in terms of ending segregation. And he dies, of course, shortly before you have the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965, right? He dies right before um, some of the most important final crumblings of Jim Crow law of of segregation. And, you know, his view in Whither Now and Why is that the coming end of segregation, right, uh, which he's now optimistic is soon, as opposed to pessimistic in the 1930s, he thinks it in fact raises questions about black people's self-organization with a kind of new intensity, right? That is, now it's going to be less of a matter of you have to, right? And there will, in that case, perhaps be more temptation to kind of flee the community to allow the black community to kind of, um, in a sense, wither away as a distinct entity. And at that point, you know, in 1960, he's saying, you know, this is yet again unsatisfactory. We should not have legal segregation. We should have uh, complete equal rights and freedom of movement and association and everything as as citizens of this country, right? And also we should continue to seek the goal of flourishing black communities. And also one of the cultural components here is his Pan-Africanism, right? So Du Bois was very much invested in the solidarity and interaction of Africans and the descendants of Africans throughout, you know, the continent and the diaspora, the uh, 
African diaspora being a way of saying, you know, the, the scattering of people of African descent, uh, particularly through the transatlantic slave trade. Yeah, so he worries that um, the black kids are going to go to these majority white schools and they're going to, you know, not learn anything about Africa, you know, and the Caribbean, you know, and that they're going to not feel that sense of connection that he thinks is actually vitally important to African-American advancement in the widest and fullest possible sense, right, which would include, you know, for him very importantly, a kind of cultural advancement rooted in the uniqueness of the community. Yeah, so I think I share this intuition that probably what we want in that situation is like, I don't know what, like a freely chosen distribution of different populations geographically. Whether that ends up with a lot of diversity in some places and a lot of pooling of similar people in other places, that'll be left to chance. But we want it to be, as it were, everybody's choice about where they live. Mm -hmm. But then one potential puzzle that arises here Mm -hmm. is how do you tell the difference between pooling of similar people in similar places that's freely chosen and everybody feels great about it or something Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and like de facto pooling of people into specific places that like reinforces an oppressive power hierarchy between them because if you ask a lot of the people Mm -hmm. who are in that situation many of them would probably feel like it's oh yeah it's freely chosen Mm -hmm. where where we're all living and Mm -hmm. and everything's great Mm -hmm. like how do we distinguish those two situations from a certain point of view somebody might try to argue that they're similar. Hmm. Yeah. I think that it is important to ask why are people tending to live together, right? And is it, for instance, because they are being excluded from certain other communities, do people by and large have the means to choose which communities they live in, right? There's a number of things that we would want to ask and when looking at kind of the current situation, We would say that in many respects, to this day, right, you know, a lot of the fact that you have concentrated black areas, which tend in many major cities to be more impoverished, right? Yeah, a lot of that has to do with not yet being at the point where everyone has the means to kind of choose with a wide variety of options, you know, where they're going to live and work and play and so on, right? So... You know, one way of thinking about what the goal is, is that uh, there would not be forms of exclusion such that a black person who wanted to live somewhere that did not have lots of black people would be unable to do so because of exclusion, right? But also that you wouldn't need to have uh, black people desiring to move away from majority black communities because those communities would also be economically flourishing, you know, communities as well. So that, you know, it really would be the kind of, as you say, kind of free choice between your concentrated communities, right? And then your more diffuse, you know, your your more kind of like, you know, I mean, like there would be your concentrated black communities and perhaps also your concentrated other um, racial or ethnic communities and then many communities perhaps that would be just kind of you know much more um, just diverse in general right and if there was really free choice it just it would be a different situation from the situation that exists even today I think that in terms of Du Bois's view the picture of having choice through various flourishing communities 
you know, I think that he would like that picture. You know, the way that you articulated the position, your position, which is an understandable one, right, is that, you know, you'd kind of like see where things end up, right? When people have that free choice, where they end up is where they end up, right? And I'd say that the Du Boisian position, which would be one, you know, that I would share is that, yes, they should have that free choice. No, we shouldn't be trying to disallow them from ending up wherever they want to end up. And yet it is legitimate and valuable that some of us advocate for continued concern for building up flourishing black communities. G.K. Jeffers, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. If you have any questions about today's episode, give us a holler on Twitter at at elucidationspod. And as always, you can post a comment to our blog at lucian, that's L-U-C-I-A-N, lucian.uchicago.edu, slash blogs, slash elucidations. On the blog, you can also explore our full back catalog of previous episodes. Thanks again for listening. Thanks again for listening.